Amen. Y'all may be seated. Y'all doing good? Good week? All right. Continue on with our God and baseball series. And last week we talked about faith, and this week we talked about doubt. And I didn't set it up this way because I believe that faith and doubt are opposite. Uh, rather, I think the opposite of faith is actually unbelief. I think faith uh, is opposite of unbelief. When you talk to people who are desperate or struggling or depressed or suicidal, they've lost belief in just about anything. They don't think anything can work, anything will help them, anything can redeem them. They don't believe anybody could possibly forgive them for what has gone on in their lives. And so they become a place, get to a place where they just don't have much belief in anything. And I don't think that's the same as doubt. Doubt requires engagement. You know, we say things like, I doubt it. It means that you are part of this equation, that you no longer can have the same kind of trust or belief in something the way that you used to. And I think it's a doubt is something that is key to our journey toward God. Uh, Part of our journey toward God is that we begin to doubt some things in our own life to where we have to have belief and faith in what God has told us. I'm just giving you quick examples and we'll move on into the scripture. But, you know, um, when we move toward God, we're saying we no longer, we, we doubt. We now doubt that God doesn't love us. We now doubt that God couldn't forgive us. We now have a doubt that we're able to save ourselves. And we begin that journey toward God along the the pathway of faith and saying that God can forgive us. God does believe in us. God can redeem our lives. And so I think doubt's essential because it helps us say goodbye to some things that we once held on to. And it also gives us a, a healthy skepticism about some other things that are in the world. I mean, there's competing ideologies, competing beliefs out there with Christianity, and, and doubt's a valuable thing when it comes to that. But let me give you an example of something that I think um, uh, many people would, would maybe struggle with, and it's in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. If you got your Bibles, I'm going to read for you a passage from Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 12 through 18. And in this, um, the writer of the letter to Ephesians begins to talk about what Christ has done, and he speaks about a new reality that many people would struggle to have faith in or to believe. And it says, At that time you were without Christ, you were aliens rather than citizens of Israel's, Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. In this world you had no hope and no God. But now thanks to Jesus Christ, you who were once so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one person out of two groups, making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. When he came, he announced the good news of peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near. We both have access to the Father through Christ by one spirit. So when... He outlines and he says what God has done in Jesus Christ. One of the things that he says is going to happen when Christ's love is present, when Christ's real things, 
that what Paul is saying, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, what he has done for us and for our salvation, that those barriers that stand between you and I and other people are destroyed, that because of what he has done for us and our salvation, we can imagine a world in which there is an equality, in which there is a, a freedom, where there is an ability for us to engage and live next to people that are from varying backgrounds, different backgrounds, in a peaceful manner. And you and I might look at that and we'd say, well, you know, that, that sounds right, that sounds like how it should be, but that is such a, a profound thing if you really begin to think about it. I mean, you, you look at things like our world and at nature, there's, there's not an equality among animals. It's kill or be killed, right? There's not an equality that comes out of the ancient world. Rather, what we find in the ancient world is that you have dictators and tyrants that have much and then many who have nothing. Things like slavery, you know, that, that actually resonates a little bit more with what you would expect in the world, but rather from Christianity and from the work of other people as well. You find that we can get to a place where this year we celebrate uh, coming up on the 4th, you know, our independence as a country. And the declaration of, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that what? All men are created equal. I mean, that is such a miraculous statement in and of itself that we don't even begin to grasp what that means. To say that people are equal, that our laws should be applied equally to its citizens and not just a disparate amount between the wealthy and the poor or however we want to divide it up. And yet the vision that the gospel gives is that more and more of that is what we should see as Christ is exalted, as Christ is worshipped, as Christ's life is embodied, that more and more we should be able to look out amongst our congregations and our churches and our lives and say, this would not be possible. These people would not be together if it were not for Jesus Christ. If they didn't have that commonality, if they didn't have that bond, then the barriers that have been destroyed, the things that have been overcome, would just not be possible. And um, let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge we're not there yet, right? But does the fact that we haven't achieved a, a diversity that matches up with our community around us mean that we have failed? I mean, you, if you have that high goal and we haven't hit perfection, does it, does it mean that we have failed? Absolutely not. It just means that we've got some more work and some more prayer and some more effort to do, right? And when we think about that, when we think about that fact, that reality of that we're not quite where we believe God wants us to be, uh, many times people will say, well, doesn't that mean that we've, we've failed? Doesn't that mean that we have not succeeded? And to that, I would say, absolutely not. I think it's something that we continue to look for, that we hope for, that we sigh for, and that we long for. And how do we begin to move toward it? Well, I think, like I said earlier, I think doubt can be helpful. And let me explain. One of my favorite uh, writers these days, he talked about growing up in a, a Christian household and how when he got to the age of confirmation, he began to have a lot of doubts. And he said, you know, when I, I look at the world and I, I see the war, and he lived at a time where the Cold War was a, a serious threat, and he said, I look at the world, and I, I began to look at what my church did and, and how things were organized. I said, I don't know if this is going to get it done. 
And he looked around his confirmation class, and he was, I mean, he's just brutally honest about it. He said, I looked around my confirmation class, and I said, I don't know if I want to be with these people. And he looked at his pastor, and he said, I don't know if I want to be like him. And he actually left the church for a while. And um, he said, I just doubted it. I didn't know if that was going to be the place that I wanted to be. I looked at all the world's problems, and I said, how could the church possibly address that? And he wanted the university, and he fell in love with socialism for a time. But then doubt helped him out of that. He said, I don't think that's going to work either. And he said, all along the way, you know, my, my doubt was there, and it was helpful in the sense that it began to help me say, this doesn't work, this won't help, this won't make a difference. And he finally rested in another place in which Christianity was a part of his life. Because he tried all the other things, and he finally came back to me and he said, this, this could be a solution that our world needs. Now, when we talk about our faith, we would love for it to be perfect. We would love for it to be exact. We would love to be able to say every little part of our faith is, is right where it should be, that we believe in the, the resurrection, we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the body of the Christ, we believe in all these things. We would love for it to be there, and yet there's still some doubts that we carry with us, some problems that we have. And doubt is so helpful in the sense that it can get us to places where we would say, I don't know how this would be possible, and yet somehow God is making it so. That we get to a place with doubt where we can say, this answer doesn't work, this one doesn't work as well, and so I'm left with nothing left but God to act and to move and to live and to breathe in the midst of this. Those moments of truth where our doubts and God's truth collide. Those, those moments of truth in which our doubts and our fears and our questions are brought into the light of God's love and God's grace. And, um, and you say to yourself, well, that's a good explanation of doubt and faith in God, but Rick, it's God and baseball. Where's my baseball? So, I know you're all dying with that question. Where's the baseball piece of this? There's a great movie, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's called Trouble with the Curve. Anybody seen this? Has Clint Eastwood, it's a, it's a little older movie, so I'm gonna help you out. Clint Eastwood's in it, Amy Adams, Justin Timberlake's in it as well. And um, the movie revolves around the question about uh, Clint Eastwood character's Gus. And Gus is a baseball scout, and he's toward the end of his career, and the higher-ups in the baseball organization are beginning to question whether or not Gus is still a good baseball scout. The younger people in the organization are saying, you know, Gus's time is over. He no longer has the ability to judge good talent like he used to. And um, the younger people in the organization are saying, we've got computers, they get rid of all doubt, right? We've got sabermetrics, we've got spreadsheets, we've got data analysis, and so why do we need anybody who is imperfect like Gus to go out and evaluate talent? And so the whole movie, I'm not going to say the whole movie revolves around it, but that's the basic question, is around this one prospect who is a great hitter, and the question is whether or not he can make it in the major leagues. And towards the end of the film, there comes this moment of truth where all the doubts and all the truth come to collide. And um, we're going to see the clip in which this happens. So here we go. And so that was the moment of truth in the movie in which all of a sudden Clint Eastwood is proven correct in his assessment of the baseball hitter. He can't hit the curve. Why you would ever question Clint Eastwood, I don't know. 
But that's what the whole movie revolves around. And, and why I love it so much is that it just points out that, you know, we live in a world in which we are so in love with the hard data, the facts, the spreadsheets, the, uh, all that goes along with it. And yet there's still a piece of us that says, yet with God, all things are possible. That even a, a church could become more diverse. That even those who are dead in their faith could find new life. That even the most stubborn critic or cynic or skeptic could come to believe in what God could do in their lives. I know that um, we live in a world where we love all those things and we love to have the idea that somehow through science or technology we can make our lives perfect and yet we've consistently shown that we were not able to do that. Maybe our heads are satisfied but our hearts long for something more. Now another example of that reality is in baseball as well. Uh, one of the things I love about baseball is that they've fought hard to keep out instant replay. And in baseball, they still use some of it for the foul poles to make sure that the ball is foul or fair, and they use it in very limited ways. And I'm so thankful for that because one of the most annoying things I find about professional football these days is instant replay. And I say that as a Saints fan that was truly robbed last year, right? But I, I love the fact that in baseball, they still leave it to the umpire to make the call on what is a strike and what is a foul. There was a manager named Joe Torre, and he said, you know, everybody wants baseball to be perfect, and yet it never is supposed to be. He said, life isn't perfect. It's messy. And baseball is the game of life. So just let it be that way. And when I think about what that says to us and, and our realities is that our hearts long for something more than what can be touched or seen or tasted. Our hearts long for a God that can do the impossible. A God who could bring together Jewish people and Gentiles, unbelievable unbelievers and those that are faithful, people that are new to the faith, those that have been along the journey for a long time. And because of what Christ has done for us and our conviction of what Christ means for our world, we're able to be together as a people to bring our faiths and our doubts and our hearts and all that we are to this place of worship and to give God the glory that he deserves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together as a people, to be honest about the fact that we sometimes struggle in our faith. We struggle to believe, to trust, to rely upon you. So we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to take a step back this day and to ask those difficult questions of what is it that we do actually believe in? What is it that we have placed our faith in that has continued to show us that it doesn't redeem or heal or, or bring about hope in our world? And help us to have